Grace and peace, beloved, and welcome to Your Week with St. Luke's, our weekly podcast that kicks off um, this, this weekly pattern that we're encouraging everyone to be in of learn, live, love, and lead. It's our hope and prayer that each week is enriching and empowering to you, and that these podcasts help you on your journey of faith as we learn the Holy Scriptures together, as we learn the stories of Jesus. So this episode, uh, we begin a new season in the Christian liturgical calendar, the season of Lent. Lent is uh, 40 days of preparation, 40 days that are, that are set aside in the Christian calendar, preparing us for Resurrection Sunday, preparing us for Easter. And we're also starting a new Lenten sermon series called Dying to Live. This theme weaves throughout the last chapters of Mark uh, as we get closer to Jesus' death and resurrection. So uh, we're still uh, in the book of Mark, and today we are looking at Mark chapter 9. So uh, Mark chapter 9 contains a a handful of stories, including a a healing. Jesus heals a a demon-possessed boy. Um, and he later then embraces a child, uh, and again, he predicts his death, something that he'll begin to do now, basically in every chapter until his death. Uh, and then towards the end of the chapter, Jesus talks about, in hyperbole, uh, the ministry that will follow him. But chapter 9 begins with what is called the transfiguration of Jesus, And I'd like to propose that one of the themes that seem to to run, uh, if only behind the scenes, uh, in chapter 9 is the theme of power and its relationship to faithfulness. And much of it actually drives our Lenten uh, sermon series, Dying to Live. So it it seems these ideas about power here in in chapter 9 and really throughout not only the Gospel of Mark, but throughout the Gospels, uh, and one could argue throughout the Bible, that they're, they're counterintuitive and subversive to our concepts uh, of what power and faithfulness is. So uh, first, uh, let's address as, as best uh, I can, or as best we can, what chapter 9, verse 1 is all about, because it's, it's actually part of the final paragraph in chapter 8. So chapter 9, verse 1 finishes a paragraph that's in chapter 8. It's an odd thing that that happens uh, when when we added chapters and verses to the Bible, Uh, but it's there, right there, chapter 9, verse 1, holding on to Mark chapter 8, verse 38, holding on for dear life. Um, But what can we say about this? Not much, really. Um, If anything, I hope that things like this, these anomalies, these things that happen in, in our ancient text, will remind us that that chapters and verses, while helpful, um, they can also distract us from from the text and what it's saying. The Bible, this this ancient collection of eclectic writings, is just that. And and sometimes uh, the best uh, engagement, um, the 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 best ingestment, the reading is happens in, in the larger larger sections um, that verses and chapters sometimes break them down. Well. Now to the the meat of chapter 9. In Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13, we have this transfiguration. We learn that it's been uh, six days since the events of chapter 8 and 9, verse 1. Jesus takes three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, 
uh, with him up to the top of a very high mountain. Now, a high mountain in, in the mind of someone uh, in the ancient Near East, first century, uh, it's, it's a place nearest to heaven, a place where uh, you have revelation, something is revealed to the person on the high mountain. It's a place where you are close to the divine. Think of uh, Moses in Exodus 3, when he encounters the divine in the burning bush that's not being consumed and receives his commission to go uh, free the, the enslaved people of Israel. Um, or think of Elijah in, in 1 Kings 19, as he goes to the cleft of a mountain and encounters um, the presence of the Almighty God. Right away, Mark's first audience will know something powerful is going to happen. As soon as we are told they're going to the top of a mountain, there's anticipation building that something powerful is going to happen. And it quite simply says at the end of verse two, he was transformed in front of them. That's what we get. Now, the Greek here is a metamorpho or metamorphe. Um, and this is where we get the word metamorphosis, actually kind of the English translation directly from that word, metamorphosis, which means to change in form, right? To trans change form or trans change figure. Jesus is changed. This seems to indicate Jesus' divine status. And then Mark gives us a, a picture of how he is changed. We are told that his clothes were amazingly bright, uh, brighter than any, any washer cleaning could create. Uh, this has allusions to, to Moses uh, when he came off Mount Horeb and his face shone brightly in Exodus. You know, and something else that's interesting uh, about this moment on the mountaintop is that if we think back through the last few weeks, uh, throughout this year so far, as we've been reading Mark's gospel and, and Dr. E.B. Arnold from, from Emory and Candler, she's pointed out that, that how rough Jesus is in Mark, how Jesus in Mark is intensely human, right? He's always touching people. And, uh, he's very interactive and engaging. And, and he shows emotion. He shows pity and anger and disgust. He, he shows that he's hungry and that he's tired. He's a rough Jesus who is always doing things, right? And when he's not doing things, he seems to always be saying things. However, in this scene where uh, his clothes shone white, Jesus expresses no emotion. Jesus does nothing. Jesus says no words. Jesus is the passive recipient of this experience, of this moment, a moment of claiming, a moment of imposing, a moment of anointing, a moment of empowering. Well, Jesus has displayed authority and power throughout Mark's gospel so far. It seems to be here a defining point. I mean, in verse four, as we keep reading, Elijah, the great prophet of Israel, who is the only human to not die. Remember, he is carried off to heaven in a chariot of fire. Elijah and Moses, the, the great leader who leads the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery. 
who brings God's commandments, God's presence to the people. Elijah and Moses now show up in this scene and they have a conversation with Jesus. This is quite different. This is a moment set aside, a moment of anointing, a moment of empowering. Now, of course, what would be a, a, a gospel story if Peter didn't interject, right? Uh, he jumps in and, and expresses a desire to draw up plans for a building project because, you know, people of faith have got to build buildings. But despite Peter's interruption, this amazing event, God's divine work uh, continues. We're told that now clouds come in, which is very reminiscent uh, of the cloud that guided the people of Israel in and through the wilderness, flame at night and cloud at day. So again, like the high mountain, clouds is an ancient Near Eastern symbolization of divine presence. And voice comes from the cloud. Listen to him. Now in Jesus' baptism in, in Mark, the voice from above is, is only heard by Jesus. But here, this is to be heard. This is to be witnessed. One thinks of Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will rise up a prophet like me from your community, from your fellow Israelites. He's the one you must listen to. This Transfiguration, this metamorphosis, confirms the glory of Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of Man. This is a powerful moment. This is a sign of power. But again, as we will see, it's not uh, as we always assume. Directly after the transfiguration in verse 14 through 29, we had the healing of the uh, epileptic boy. This healing this and the previous transfiguration are, are joined together in all of the synoptic gospels. And so far in Mark, we've seen Jesus feed the multitudes twice. Jesus has healed many people. Jesus has walked on water. In chapter six, Jesus breaks his disciples up in, in into pairs, and Jesus gives them authority over unclean spirits. But then we have this moment where this this boy needs to be healed. We get this moment where the disciples seem powerless. Jesus says so himself in verse 19, uh, where he calls them, "You, you faithless generation. How long will I be with you? How long will I put up with you? Bring him to me. Our snarky and rough Jesus has returned in full force, right? Faith and power seem to have a connection, at least for Jesus, at least here. And in verse 28, the disciples asked Jesus privately, you know, why couldn't we throw this spirit out? They they seem to get that they should have had the power, but are dismayed that they don't. So much so that Lamar Williamson uh, titles this section of Mark 9 as the boy the disciples could not heal. 
this lack of power from the disciples is in contrast with the glory and power of Jesus at his transfiguration. The faithlessness and impotence of the disciples contrasted with the faith and power of Jesus. And notice Jesus gives an instruction in verse 7. I said it just a minute ago. Bring him to me. It seems that Peter, James, and John uh, took the words spoken from the cloud on the mountain seriously. They listened to him. So we have here, Jesus rebukes the unclean spirit, but also his disciples who should have been able to heal the boy, but could not. Well, then we have a new character that comes onto the scene. The, the father, he is desperate. He is exhausted and he has exhausted every avenue, every option. And he says, if you can do anything, help us, show us compassion. And Jesus responds to the father is no rebuke. Jesus' response is, is one of compassion. In verse 23, if you can do anything, snarky Jesus, all things are possible for the one who has faith. There seems to be a link to kingdom power and faithfulness. And the father responds with this, this powerful and profound response. I have faith. Help my lack of faith. It seems that in Mark, God's power works effectively among those who trust in God's kingdom. And this statement and request from the Father, I have faith, help my lack of faith, is powerful. It echoes Psalms 109. It says, help me, Lord my God, save me according to your faithful love. It also has echoes of, of Psalms 119. All your commandments are true, but people harass me for no reason. Help me. It's as if what we hear from the Father is a prayer. A prayer of faithfulness. A prayer of desperation. A prayer for faith and strength. Faith that is longing for more faith seems that the father is open to growth. His initial request may show a lack of faith, but his last request is a powerful sign of faith. The father has shown a measure of faith by, by bringing his son to Jesus, as well as his desperate plea for help. The father manifests both unbelief and faith. Aren't we all a, a mix of this? At times we find ourselves in, in disbelief and unfaithfulness. And other times, great faith wells up within us. One of my favorite definitions of theology was coined by Anselm in the 11th century. Faith seeking understanding. That theology is faith seeking understanding. 
faith is required for understanding, but also that reason is essential to understanding. The Father embodies this quite well, much, much better than the disciples. And Jesus answers the Father's prayer, healing the boy, and in doing so, confirming the Father's faith and granting both kinds of help for the Son and for the Father. Well, as, as mentioned earlier, the, the disciples want to know why they don't have the power to heal the boy. And Jesus' response is, uh, throwing this kind of spirit out, he says, requires prayer. I wonder if the Father's statement and request, I have faith, help my lack of faith. If it is, in fact, a prayer, then is Jesus referring to the Father's prayer and the Father's faith? Power bestowed in Jesus, manifest at the transfiguration, is linked to faithfulness and prayer. Well, the next scene has the group traveling to Galilee and then specifically Capernaum. And we get Jesus predicting his death, but here it seems as if only a passing conversation. Three sentences, in fact. Jesus will say more with each chapter as we continue in Mark. And the disciples then have a discussion about ranking and hierarchy, about privilege and power. They enter a home that they're not in the public square. And Jesus circles the group up and tells them something that should become obvious to this group. Should be, should be becoming obvious, at least, uh, from what they've witnessed so far about ranking and hierarchy, about privilege and power. Jesus reverses all of their ideas about power and might. He says, whoever wants to be first must be least of all and a servant of all. Jesus then reaches out for a child, most likely a child who, who lives in this home, and Jesus embraces this child. The, the, the word brings images of a hug, of a compassionate hug, embrace. It's a powerful image, as if the transfiguration and the healing of the boy was not enough. Jesus drives home the point that power in his kingdom is counterintuitive and even subversive to what his disciples, his culture, and even us today conceive. Even in the, the last encounter uh, of Mark chapter 9, we have Jesus reorganizing our priorities. priorities. Again, making this point, verse 38 through 50, Jesus isn't concerned about people doing good in his name. The disciples are. We can't get him to stop. Just like, I'm not worried about people doing good in my name. Just do good. What Jesus is concerned about is the least, the last, the lost, being hurt, harmed, marginalized, put underfoot. 
He says, whoever causes these little ones who believe in me to trip and fall into sin, it would be better for them to have a huge stone hung around their necks and to be thrown into the lake. Power, faithfulness, prayer. These are the things we're to be about, but it's counterintuitive to how we conceive them. But what about you? What do you think are the relationships between power and faith and prayer? What concepts, what images of power were you raised to recognize, to see, to to look for, to emulate? And how are all of these images and ideas different or similar to the images that Mark chapter 9 give us? Well, as we think about these things and as you continue to read uh, Mark chapter 9 throughout this week, I, I pray that uh, these images and these ideas uh, might be at the forefront of your week as you think about the role of, of power and what kingdom power actually is as we seek to follow and to listen to this transfigured Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Grace and peace to you all. 